while you're giving this morning, um, one of the things that we get asked a lot right now is, how's it going? How are, how are things going since October the 23rd when we first started this blending of lives together? And, and we just want you to know that, that things are going really well. Things are wonderful. Things, we anticipate a, a, an amazing year ahead in 2012. And, and uh, we want to kind of fill you in on some of the details of that. We want you to feel connected and know kind of what's going on, and so we're going to be talking about this, uh, probably uh, announce a little bit more in detail next week, but in the next several weeks, we're going to have a family meeting. We're going to invite all of you to come on a Sunday night, and we're just going to kind of give you a, a report of what's been going on. There's been some really wonderful things, some outreaches that have gone on since we've connected together. We're going to give you a financial report. We're going to talk about the future and how we see these lives blending together, moving forward, and how we're going to do this with the services and all those things um, that are happening. And so that's coming. And so um, be aware of that, listening for that. We'll make sure that you know exactly the details of that coming up. Let's stand to our feet uh, once again as we do every Sunday. We speak these words. Again, uh, you know, the word sanctuary gives lots of different meanings to people. When they drive by and they see a church um, named Sanctuary. Um, they don't know exactly what that means. Uh, you probably get asked, well, what, do you, what does your church believe? What kind of a church are you? Everybody's kind of trying to figure out, you know, who we are. And this is one of the ways that we say, well, this is what we believe. And there's something about speaking these words that not only it does something in us, but it connects all of our lives together. So let's speak these this morning. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. What a thing to believe in. Amen. Be seated. Pastor Ed. Good morning. How's everybody doing? You know, if you're ever interested in attending church on a Saturday night instead of Sunday morning, if you're going to be gone for the weekend or gone for the, on Sunday or something, uh, we have a sister church, Emmaus Road, downtown Tulsa, that uh, Pastor Preston uh, oversees, and uh, you may want to check that out. You can check the website and find out more information about that. I went to a crazy um, sort of complicated independent movie, oh, no, no. independent movie, sorry, independent movie over uh, break. Uh, in Chicago, we were in Chicago for a couple of days, and when I was watching the movie, you know, I kind of got mad at people that like independent films because I felt so stupid because I couldn't figure out what was going on, and I kept watching, and I kept watching, and it was fairly complicated, and they were all Brits, so they talked weird, and I'm trying to listen, and you know, the first thing to go when you get old is your ears, and you know, they're partway gone. <laughs> you have that because you confessed it. No, I had it first before I confessed it. So I'm trying to figure it out, and finally, at one point, I go, oh, got it. See, those aha moments when things you don't quite get, and they sort of come together, and you get, those are called epiphanies. 
That's what this month's about. It's about the notion of Epiphany. The church has celebrated this for many, hundreds and hundreds of years. The notion that God reveals himself at different points and segments in our lives, individually and as community. And what that means is there's a lot of time that goes on. You don't know what's going on. Plot's going this way, going that way. You're thinking, man, why in the world did I ever get that accounting degree? I mean, you don't, it just, you don't know why, what, how. And then all of a sudden, at some point in your life, you go, oh, stamp. God is smart, right? And it makes sense to you. And so during this month, we're going to be talking about awaken. Talking about awakening to the notion that we are in a context of a story that God is telling. And we're in that context as individuals, certainly. But also we're in this context and we have to discover our place in the story as a community. And we should never forget that faith is as corporate as it is private. And that's very pale to us as Americans because we're such rugged individualists. We just, you know, a lot of times we just want to come to church and say, well, tell me what I'm supposed to think and okay, and I'll take it with me and I'll work it out and I'll see you next Sunday when I'm in great victory. You know, so we're kind of, we're kind of individualists. We don't understand that God really intends for us to move together as a community. That doesn't mean we know all of each other's names. It doesn't mean we know all of each other's stuff. But it means that on some level we're connected and that we recognize that connection. The Bible claims that that connection is deeper than our sense of nationality, that it's deeper than our sense of, of race and how we're connected to others of our same race, that it's different than our sense even of blood that our connection with brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts, that even though that's a real connection of blood, that somehow the community of faith has a deeper connection than even that. that. That we're connected to one another on some kind of level, metaphysical level, that we belong to one another. But it's not just the people we hang with. It's not just the people we go to church with, like here at Sanctuary or, or the small groups that you're part of. We're actually connected to every single person who's a person of faith on this planet, alive right now that we are part of their lives and they're a part of our lives. That somehow when you work with people that go to the Methodist church or go to the Catholics or whatever, if they're people of faith, you should always have in your heart a sense of reverence and honor and respect for them because they're part of the community of faith, even if they don't go to the same house you go to. That we honor them, we respect them. But it's even beyond that. The scripture actually claims that we are not just connected to them, the people that we are around, the people that are beyond where we're around, that are around the world, that are alive, but we're actually still connected to those who have gone before us. That they're actually with God. I mean, when people die in the Christian story, they don't just stop living. They go to God. And when they go to God, they're actually in God's presence. And because they're in God's presence and God is in our presence, they come with God. So we actually are part, uh, we say it in the creed, we use the term, the community, uh, the fellowship of believers. Which, which we may need to argue about a little bit because we should really have a communion of the saints. Because why fellowship of believers sort of implies we're all hanging with each other when we have fellowship. Communion of the saints implies something a little more opaque. You go, what's that? And what it means is we're connected to every single person in this room, out of this room that are people of faith, and people that have gone before us. That on some level we're connected to them. It's a beautiful story or narrative in, in, in Hebrews 11 where the Hebrew writer talks about all of these people that were people of faith, how Abraham lived and Sarah lived and how they trusted God. And it talks about David and begins to talk about all these different other prophets and uh, leaders in this community of faith through uh, history. And as he talks about that, he sort of culminates at the very end of that chapter. He said all of these people were commended for their faith, yet none of them really got the big kahuna, right? 
the God had planned something better for us so that only together, everybody say together, with us would they be made perfect. See, the, these people that have died before us, they're still a part of us and we're still a part of them. And then he goes on, the writer goes on and says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's referring to all these people of faith that are right now in God's presence, that they're like a cloud of witnesses. The, the, the imagery here is the Colosseum. You'll see that in a second. Where they used to have games where everybody was sitting in the Colosseum and they'd watch the games. What, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that all these people that have died before us and all the angels and God himself is in our presence and they're watching us who are alive right now, living our moment, finding our place in this story. He says, therefore, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off the things that hinder, the sins that mess with us and entangle us, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked for us. And then just a little later, later in the passage, he writes, you guys, you've come, you haven't just come to church. <laughs> You're not just in the planet. You, you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God who's the judge of all people, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. He's talking about the saints. We've come to all the people that have gone before us. We've actually come to them when we gather, when we worship, when we pray, when we open our lives, when we live our lives. We're somehow connected to all of these people. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Notice, he speaks when we recognize who we are and who we're with. He speaks when we realize we're together. That faith, we don't say, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed. We say, our Father. Faith is as communal as it is private. And when we recognize when we gather here that, that everyone's here, us, but also in another way, every believer on the earth is kind of present. And not only that, but all the saints. This is one of the cool things about the Orthodox Church. They have these icons. They're kind of weird looking to us. They were cool when they made them because it was, it was in, in vogue when they made them and then they just kept it. Nobody changed it because it got holy after 10 years. But, but, but they have these pictures of, you know, the Apostle Paul, or these icons, Apostle Paul, Mary, you know, all the different, the 12 apostles and different saints and they put them all around their building. You can go in and the church has it all around their, their, their above, you know, where they worship. Why? Because they, they want to remember that while they're worshiping, while they're saying the prayers, while they're quoting the scripture, while they're coming to the Eucharist, that they're coming with everyone, not only in the room, but everyone who's gone before them. I think that's sweet. I think there's something formative about that. I think that's something that messes with us, that challenges us to remember we're part of a story that's a lot larger than our personal history. Now, this is very unusual, particularly for Americans, because if you read anything about history, you know that America is very unusual because we're ahistorical. What that means is the, the, the historians say, the, the academics say, we're ahistorical because we left everything. You know, talking about, I'm talking about the West, when the West came here, not the natives, but when the West came here. They left everything, princes, families, backgrounds, and they came, and their whole idea was, we're going to create a future. History is irrelevant. And that spirit is still in us. And so we forget we are part of something more than ourselves. So uh, this month, when we talk about awakening and finding our context in God's story that he's calling us into, 
we have to remember some of these things. We're, 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 because thinking about this, it bumps up against this huge idea that God has a will for us. He has a will for us as individuals. He has a will for us as a people. And that's a pretty gnarly enterprise, this idea of a will of God. Because what, what you have to face is the question, does God really have a will for me? I mean, because do I matter that much? Does God have a will for his people, for this community that we gather, sanctuary? And, and do we matter that much? The biblical claim is that we do. And you, you bump into these many, many scriptures, but the one in particular that sort of hits me or I thought about when I was getting ready for the, to talk with you about this was this biblical prayer song that the whole community of faith has prayed for thousands of years. The Jews, the Christians, they have prayed this. for It's in the Psalms. And they would say this together. They would sing this together as it was their prayer. And listen to what they said. They said, for you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together when I was in my mom's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully, that means intentionally, and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. What he's saying is you don't make junk that somehow you've created me the way that I am on purpose with this schnoz, right? You, you, what, what, and he says, I know that full well. Most of us don't know that we actually are intentional, that what makes us laugh, what makes us cry, what we're interested in, things that we lean into, things that, things that, are, that, that we find interesting are all a part of God calibrating us, working in us developing us in our mom's womb. Before we passed out our first tract or said our first praise of the Lord, God was chasing us. And he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth and my eyes, your eyes, saw my unformed body. <laughs> and then he says, all the days, or the, then the prayer is, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. They said this together, they communicate. This was their word, this was their prayer. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What he's saying is somehow God thought about us before we were here. While we were still in our mother's womb, there was a book that was formed where the high water marks of our lives for the days in which we would live were written. What if that's true? Wouldn't you like to look at the book? Right? What do you want for me? What, what is your dream? What is your thought for me? See, they sung this prayer, and, and you get the point. These ideas defined them. They began to think God is intentional about us. They believed that they mattered. Something very powerful about that thought. You matter. When Paul was preaching to the pagans, he claimed in Acts 17, from one person God made every nation of people, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time in history that they'd be born and the exact place where they would be. God picked you to be born in this time. And he picked that weird family to put you in. On purpose. Not because he hates you. But because he believes in you. That you can bring hope, redemption, strength into the context of the world in which you live. And, and the idea here that God is saying is that we are a dream come true. From God. He thought about us before we showed up here. 
And Paul goes on to say, in him we live and move and have our being. That God very intentionally has pulled us in and loved us and created us. I, I love thinking about this. I love thinking that I'm not an accident, that I'm on purpose, that God has a plan for me. Uh, these thoughts mess with us in ways that are formative because they make us think, wait a minute, I am on purpose. What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Why am I here? And it causes us to realize that our lives are not our own. Your life is not your own. And when you start thinking about that, well, wait a minute, what, is, what does he want? It, it makes you interested in finding out what's written in that book about you where you're supposed to fit and what you're supposed to do. Those things start emerging when you realize I'm on purpose and the time in history and the place in history is intentional. What do you want from me? But here's the bad news about this. God loves to hide stuff. That little book he has for you, he ain't showing you real easy. And he tucks away stuff. He loves to hide. In fact, listen to this text. It's disturbing. He says, Isaiah 45, truly you are a God who hides himself. O God and Savior of Israel. And then he says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Man, I grew up evangelical charismatic. I thought the glory of God was exposing everything. When God's just pow, zam, bam, boom, 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 you know, every, you know, feeling God, seeing God, experiencing God. I, I thought we had to keep praying, keep doing whatever to make sure everybody just we walk in the glory, you know. That's what we thought. And when I read this, I, you know, at first I thought, what? But when you read the scriptures, you understand most of the time God loves to tuck away. In fact, most of the good stuff is hidden. You know, where is the, is, is the gold hanging out in the open? The silver, the platinum, the oil, is any of that hanging out? No, it's in secret. And if you want the good stuff, you got to dig. Well, honey, listen, there may be gold in them hills of your soul, but if you want the good stuff, you're going to have to dig. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, to, to search out a matter is the glory of kings. In other words, if you want to reign, you're going to have to, in life, you're going to have to dig and realize that God has a lot of the stuff that he has planned for you undercover. You've got to become a miner. You've got to find some shovels and that one weird axe thing looking thing. Pick. Pick, 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 pick. <laughs> That's what we're up to. This, uh, this month in Sanctuary, we're going to pick on you. We're going to try to dig and figure out where you fit in the story, where we fit together in the story. And uh, so I want to give you two kind of monster excavating thoughts that will help you figure out, discover where you fit in this morning, and then uh, we'll pick it up again next week. But thought number one is to unearth your place in the story. You have to recognize, get this, that you are more God's will than what you do. You are God's will. More than what you do is God's will. Let me say it this way. Uh, who you are is more important than what you do. This is pretty hard for us as Americans because we're, we're kind of performers. We kind of think if we are, it, 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 who we are is established by what we do. So if we want to be important, we, can, we have to do important things. And if we want to be valuable, then we have to have more stuff than other people have. And if we want to matter, we've got to be socially connected in a way that makes us matter. It's very difficult for us to realize this is not how God thinks. He's not looking for your performance. So he says, oh, my, look at her. She's marvelous. 
You know, let's, posi- let's just demonstrate her because she's so amazing. That's not how God thinks. The way God thinks is you are important because you were created by him. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about how God creates people great and small. Not everybody is great. Some people were created small, not because God hates us, but because he wants us to fit where big doesn't fit. And we'll talk about that. And, uh, but the idea here is, is that somehow we need to realize that we matter because God created us and he is simply jazzed about us. He is simply excited that we are his children. He has stuff for us to do, but that is not nearly as wonderful in his mind as we are. A good way to think about this is parenting. How many parents are out there? You know, if you're not an insane patient parent, you know, you know that you just love your kids because they're your kids. We've got four kids and they do different stuff and sometimes they succeed at different stuff or, you know, you know and you're proud of them. Oh, way to go. But the reality is it doesn't matter what they do. I mean, you want them to be the best they can. I mean, if they, if they have a, a penchant or a capacity to, to have a higher education, then you want them to do that. You don't want them to just, you know, watch video games and, uh, you know, work at the, a gas station if they have more potential to do that. But there's nothing wrong with working at a, a job that's sort of a simple job. If that's, I mean, just no matter what a person chooses, that doesn't really define them. Particularly as a parent, you think, I love you. I'm for you. I want you to make it. I want you to be happy. I want you to fulfill what it is you are, uh, so, you know, that you can do. We want the best for them. We're crazy about our kids. That's how God is with us. It's not so important that everything you do sort of gains anything from him. God is crazy over us. He sings over us, the Bible says. He tattoos us in his hand. <laughs> he, thinks about, he thinks about us without ceasing. In fact, if we go back to that song prayer in Psalms, this is what they sang, the same, same part of that Psalm 139. He says, oh, Lord, you've searched me. You know me. You know when I sit. He's watching that you're sitting. You know when I stand up. You perceive my thoughts. That's crazy. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Even before I talk, you know what I'm, I'm saying. At least God's listening to me. <laughs> See, he knows us completely. He's our father. He is completely into us. And what I'm suggesting to you is, if you're going to find your place in the story, you have to start with the, in the right place. You have to realize that your place in the story is more determined by who you are than what you do. That who you are is huge to God. That you belong to him is huge to God. Back in the 80s when Life magazine was still in circulation, I ran across a, a, a one particular magazine that was at the um, grocery store that was devoted to telling the stories of a lot of the children of famous families in America. And they covered the Kennedys and the Rockefellers, you know, those kinds of families. And so I found myself going through that magazine. I bought it. I'm looking at the magazine. And I was fascinated as I read about, you know, some of them, one of them was a, a publishing magnet and another one was an entrepreneur and another one was a lawyer and there was all these different stories as I'm reading this. And I thought to myself, why am I so interested in this? It wasn't that I'm interested in lawyers or interested in public, you know, uh, publishers or interested in, I mean, it, it, you know, really what they were doing wasn't as interesting as the fact that it was who they were. Oh, that Kennedy's doing that, that Rockefeller's doing that. It was, it was who they were that made what they did interesting. Chelsea Clinton. It was after President Clinton was nominated in office in 1992. He got in office in 93, but he's president-elect. But a month after he's in office, 
on the front page of the U.S. Today sports section, front page, here's Chelsea Clinton standing in front of a, you know, dressed in a, in a soccer uniform, standing in front of the goalie area, the goal. She was a goalie at this, you know, private school in Washington, D.C. And so I opened the page and I looked at that and I teasingly thought in my head, oh my God, what a coincidence that President-elect Clinton's daughter happens to be the most amazing high school goalie. So amazing that U.S. Today sports section put her on the front page. Wow, she must be an amazing goalie. I didn't think that. Nobody thought that. The only reason she was on the front page of the, of the US Today, USA Today uh, sports section is because her name is Chelsea Clinton. Who she is made what she did important. This is how God does it. It doesn't matter. Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't born a prince. He wasn't born an intellectual, even though I'm sure since he created all intellectuals, he could do it. He was born, and he was a carpenter. See, it doesn't matter if you're a butcher or baker or candlestick maker. What really matters is whose you are, that you belong to God. And because you belong to God, you transcend everything else you do. Yeah, you should do the best you can with the stuff God put in you. So if you have capacities to be an intellectual, you have capacities to be a doctor, you have capacities to be a great construction guy that builds great houses, I mean, you should do what's in you to do. We'll talk about that. But beyond that, you, just because you're you and you're connected to God, you mean something to God. And who you are is bigger and more important than what you do. That's where this starts in the story. My mom, greatest gift she ever gave me, and I remember the moment I was in... uh, in uh, Little League. My father's from Turkey, so he never taught us how to play baseball or any of that kind of stuff. So I had never even gone to practice. I just got thrown, and she shined me up for peewee. I got thrown in peewee. I think I was 16. (laughs) That was eight. So she threw me into peewee, and I'm standing there. I don't even know how to hold the bat. I mean, I'm just kind of standing like this with the bat. I didn't even know know what to do. So I'm standing there, and, uh, and the pitcher started pitching, and Oh my gosh, that ball was going by me like a five million miles an hour. So I thought I better swing at it. So I swung at that pitch and it hit me. Right there. I went, you know, tears start to well up in my eyes. I'm I'm injured. And I knew enough about it that I get to walk because I've been injured. So I put the bat down, I started walking the upper. I goes, where are you going? He said, get back here. He said, I said, it hit me. He said, it didn't hit you. So I came back and I held the bat again, you know, and I'm sitting there going, kind of choking up. And then the next swing, or the next ball comes, and I swing again. And it hit in the exact same place. Exact. What are the chances? Oh, I dropped the bat. I started trying to walk, you know, now I'm just crying. And, and, and I started walking, he says, get back here. I said, it hit me. No, it didn't hit you. And my mom, my little Puerto Rican mom, who nobody could understand because she had such a thick accent. Edwin! From the stands. And I look, I have a choice here. Do I give up my career? And go get solace? Or do I stick it out as a man? Mom! <laughs> 
I wussied out. I went to my mom. I'm out there. I'm just crying, man. And I'm out in the parking lot. And I'll never forget my mom. She looked at me, leaned down over me. She grabbed me by the shoulders. She looked into my face very sternly. She said, listen to me. She said, you do not have to be good at baseball. She said, you, you have something. She said, the bottom line is, she said, you're a gunger. I didn't know what she meant. But something in her tone, it, it put something in me. It was like this brown ooze kind of went into me. This confidence, this sense, I don't have to be perfect to be okay. I don't have to be good at everything to be okay. In fact, I'm okay because I'm a gunga. Now, when I grew up and realized that meant nothing. <laughs> nothing. But something had gotten in me. And I, all my life I've had this sense, even when I've been total, when I've completely blown things, and I have blown things big, there was this sense in me, I've got something more in me than what my circumstances say. That, my friend, is a gift. Somehow, on some level, you and I need to realize we matter because we're here. And that God, the reason we're part of God's story is not because we have all these gifts, not because we're so good, not because we're so talented, not because we have these wants or our desires or capacities. It's, that's part of it. But it's how well we know we belong, we're His, and that we begin to live out our lives in health. That's what matters, which leads me to the second monster thought that will help you and I discover where we fit in God's story that He's telling, and that's this thought. You and I need to put greater value on the general will of God for our lives than on the specific will of God for our lives. Most of us want to know, well, what does God want me to do? Exactly. And sort of lean back until he tells us. Just play video games until he tells us. Not realizing that you and I need to invest our lives in the general will of God for everybody. And that somehow as we invest in the general will of God, the specific will of God will dawn. We've got plenty to do, though, if he never tells us specifics. Here's a couple of examples of the general will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5. Be joyful when? Always. That's a job. Pray continually. Give thanks when everything's going perfectly. No, give thanks in everything. You mean even when I lose my job? Yeah. Even when I didn't get in the class I wanted to get? Yes. Even when I got dumped? Yes. Not that God does all that. But you give thanks in spite of everything. That's, he goes on to say, this is God's will for you. What's God's will? Give thanks. What's God's will? Be joyful. See, if you get the general will of God down, the specific will of God will emerge. Uh, another one, this is Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. That's his will. That's his command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor. <laughs> Learn to love people. Oh, man, that's a toughie. I'd rather hate people. I'd rather God love them. 
God, you love them. I'll judge them. I'll correct them. I'll hate them for you. I'll send them to hell. Notice that when Jesus calls us to this doing, and when the gospel or the New Testament calls us to doing, it's more about how you live than what you do. God is interested in how you live. Listen, bottom line is God cares more about how you work than where you work. God cares more about how you approach marriage than who it is you're married. God cares more about how you act in a church than which church you attend. If you don't know how to work, why would he lead you to a place to work? You wouldn't represent him, you selfish little ingrate. Why, if you don't know how to love and celebrate another person, why would he lead you to someone specifically to marry? Why would he want to torment that other person for the rest of their lives? ran into a gal, this was years ago, sweetest gal, little undisciplined, had a little too much to eat, a little too much, she was a little bit more of an Eeyore, you know Eeyore, you know, real negative and oh bother and everything's a problem, and you know, a little pig penish, you know what I mean, like, uh, you know, in the Charlie Brown cartoon, you know, if you, if you, if you get around pig pen, you get dust on you, she's a little dusty, right? Really pretty girl, really wonderful girl on a number of levels, but really kind of broken on a number of levels. So, you know, she was crying one night, and I was talking to her, and she's just weeping. You know, you don't want to come to me for counseling. Anyway, just sidebar, <laughs> sidebar. I'm, I just ask the sharps. This is why this is a marriage in heaven here. Uh, Ed Gunger and people that care. Um, <laughs> I'm always telling people, don't confuse me with someone that cares. <laughs> anyway, so I'm with this lady. She's really, oh, she's a young girl. Gail and I were in, it was kind of a college ministry thing in Wisconsin, and, and uh, this was before I was pastoring, and we were just, we were in this Catholic charismatic prayer group, and there's a lot of high school kids, a lot of uh, college kids, and so this particular gal, I'm talking to her one night, and she's sitting there, and she's eating pieces of uh, bonbons of something, some sort of chocolate thing, and she just boo-hooing and sticking chocolates in her mouth. <laughs> I'm sitting there looking at her thinking. So she goes, I don't understand why the Lord doesn't speak to me about what I'm supposed to do. I've been praying. I don't know. He doesn't tell me if I'm supposed to go to college. He doesn't tell me if I'm what, what I'm supposed to major in. He just, all I want to do is get married. Have kids. I'm listening to her, and I'm, when she said that, I am kidding you, I heard in my heart, if her husband that would work for her right now would walk into the room, he wouldn't even recognize her. He wouldn't recognize her. Because, see, you, you remember how in the, in the narrative of Genesis, how Eve connected with Adam? Well, she followed God. So you follow God in your life, and you let God mess with you. Because, listen, just because you're God's child doesn't mean you're perfect. In fact, if you have children, you realize they're not perfect. Our main goal with our children was we wanted people to love them, not just us. And if you're not careful, you'll raise third world dictators that are 
that have no discipline, that have no character development. They're just slobs. Right? And so you have to get in their face. You have to deal with them. We used to beat our children. <laughs> now, this was, it, wasn't, it wasn't out of you know, fashion to beat your children back then. You know, it is now. <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't mean we really beat them. You know, we would give them spankings, though. You know, we would say, I, you know, there's a verse that says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline drives apart from them. So I would tell my kids, I'd say, now, now, you didn't listen to your daddy's words, right? No. I said, what does that mean? It means foolishness is in your heart, right? Yeah. You know that the rod of discipline drives out foolishness from your heart, right? Yeah. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you over daddy's knee, and we're going to get out the pow-pow thing, and we're going to give you three, this is the three pow-pow thing. And what we're going to trust is that the foolishness will be driven out from you. Okay. So I say, Lord Jesus, we're praying right now that as I beat this child, that the foolishness will come out of this child. I say, you believing with me, son? You believe in it? I'm believing it. So I'd bend them over. It's amazing how stiff they were. You'd bend them over. Yeah. Come on, come on. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. He said, the foolish of God, it's gone! So we beat him. Now, now we do time out. You know, I'm cool with that. Whatever you want to do is fine with me. You just have to have, you have, to have consequences. Right, I'm, you're not going to get that from me. I'm not asking you to beat your children. Although it's kind of fun. <laughs> I just can't, just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. It's horrible. It hurt me worse than it hurt them. But the reality is, listen, we did that kind of because we had to develop these kids. They had, you and I need to understand, we have got to grow. We've got to develop. God's got to mess with us. We've got to learn the general will of God. We've got to realize that our thinking isn't always right. When I challenged, I said, listen, I don't even know if your husband would even know who you are. You've got to get control of yourself. Oh, she didn't want to hear that boo-hoo and even more. Don't talk to me. Some of you gals, well, let me pick on the guys first. There's a young pastor who came to me. This was years ago. He said, I want to, I love this girl, but I'm having a problem. I don't, I don't think I can marry her. I said, why not? Well, you're going to think it's stupid. I said, probably. He said, you're going to laugh at me. Probably. What's the deal? So he worked up the courage. He looked down. Now, can, can we talk? Can we talk? talking to you. Can we talk? Okay. He looked down. Here's what he said. I kid you not. She has tiny breasts. I went, <laughs> that is stupid. Have you looked in the head? I mean, in the mirror, you've got a huge head. I said, listen to me, bro. Listen, I'm telling you, listen. Marriage is more about compatibility and friendship, and if you can connect with this person, you can work through your stuff. That's what it's about. And I'm telling you, you turn off that light, jump under those covers, buck naked, and it will not be a problem. <laughs> See, some of these guys have this image in their minds of this perfect something that is just a lie, and you're being stupid, and you will get old alone. 
than the girls. That's not what the girls said. Some of you gals, uh, if you're not married, I mean, you can choose not to be married, and not everybody's supposed to get married. I mean, Jesus, read Jesus on that, and Paul on that. But if you choose to be married and, and you don't get married, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it's not because it's not God's will, but it's because you don't know how to work with a guy. Let me tell you something about guys. Guys your same age are less mature than you and a bit stupid. Now, we get this, guys. We know our stupid. We kind of enjoy being stupid. We may be smart at a lot of stuff, but our relational intelligence is about that of a gnat. And, and here's the deal. The way you get into our hearts and the way you help us not be gnats and actually get some relational intelligence is by not crushing our ego. Male egos, they come across like they're big something, but in all honesty, they are fragile as the, as the day is long. And you treat us and make us feel stupid on some time, and we will leave you in a heartbeat. But some women think, well, no, I hate egos. I'm just, I want a guy that just can handle the truth. You're doing it by yourself, too. Here's what I'm saying to you. If you let God lead you in your everyday life and learn how to love and learn how to live, what will end up happening is you'll be able to see from that place the specific will of God for your life. Let's stand up because we've got to... Oh, my gosh, stand up. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> you just gave it to me at 5 to 12. <laughs> One quick story now that you think I'm done. Jesus, 12 years old. He has a sense of the specific will of God. He's in Jerusalem. He's with his parents, his family, at a celebration. They head back to Nazareth. It's one of the only, it's the only child story we have from Jesus. He goes, they go back to Nazareth, and they thought he was with the other cousins and stuff. He wasn't. They are out a day's travel, came back a day. I mean, it's been two or three days since they've seen him because they had to look for him for a couple of days in Jerusalem, couldn't find him. They finally found him at the temple. He's talking to the scribes. Everybody thinks he's an amazing, gifted, amazing child. My goodness, 12 years old, he has them pondering. We better put him in college right now. Jesus, his mom shows up, and mama is not a happy Jewish mama. And here's what she said. Why have you treated us like this? Remember what Jesus said? Well, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And all we know from the story is Mary, on some level, grabbed him by the ear and said, this is the business. <laughs> Brought him back home. And for 18 years, Jesus grew up at home. They think Joseph died some short time after that, so he had to help supply for the home, meet bills, learn to work with his hands as a carpenter. Imagine cutting wood in that ancient way when inside you could figure out a chainsaw. <laughs> Splinters, dealing with customers, dealing with irate customers, paying bills. And by the time Jesus emerges in his ministry, he's a man who has lived out the general will of God to a T. And all of his messages, all of his parables were contextualized, God's kingdom contextualized in the world of ordinary, and that's why he changed the world. See, you are called by God to 
with us to change the world. It will not happen because you're so amazingly gifted. It will happen because you're amazingly living. It's said about Jesus in Hebrews that he had the power of an indestructible life. So when you have an indestructible life, picture baker, candlestick maker, preacher, great singer, millionaire entrepreneur, those things are irrelevant to the fact that you live well. Let's lift up our voices together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Whoa, you could sing that this morning. I, I got goosebumps. You don't even know how well you sang that this morning. Woo! Sanctuary. That was beautiful. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you learn to trust in him. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, there are people up front for prayer. If not,